One of our brothers will be working on the ocean soon. In fact, he tells me they'll be working there tomorrow. He has farmed the land, and now he will farm the sea with an oyster farming outfit. This is what our, our brother Nick tells me. He goes with prior experience, uh, but he doesn't go with all his own gear. They will provide him with an oilskin coat, rubber boots, and dive gear. It's not charity on their part. They're just giving him what's needed to get the job done. They want their oysters harvested. Now, imagine with me that we live in an alternate universe in which Nick is devious and conniving instead of a trustworthy guy. Imagine if, unbeknownst to the company, Nick was hiding buckets of oysters in the back of his truck, and he planned to run off at the end of the week with all the gear they've given him. I don't even need to ask you how they'd react. They'd be ticked. You'd be ticked if you were the owners. That's their oysters and gear. They don't belong to Nick to do whatever he pleases with them. He's supposed to be working for them, not robbing them. Now, as we come here to Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46, I think we find that Jesus is responding to a similar situation by use of a parable. And it's good for us to remember the situation that's been related to us here in chapter 21. Jesus has entered Jerusalem with great fanfare on the back of a donkey, welcomed with cries of Hosanna and palm branches and coats thrown on the ground to kind of make red carpet of sorts for his entry. He's gone into the temple and he's turned over the tables of the money changers and released their animals that they were selling there. You also remember that he's been teaching in the temple. And at this point, the Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, the high priests and the elders of the people are a little bit annoyed. They're a little bit upset about everything that Jesus has been doing. And so they went to Jesus and confronted him, asking, where do you get your authority from? And Jesus turned the tables on them by asking, well, where did... John's baptism come from heaven, or is that just something he decided to make up? And their lack of willingness to respond revealed the fact that they understood that Jesus did in fact have this authority based on what he was doing, based on what he was saying, but that they did not want to accept it. They were denying and rejecting Jesus even while tax collectors and prostitutes were coming to him, coming to John the Baptist and coming to Jesus. 
So coming to verses 33 through 41, Jesus offers us a second parable. The first parable was the parable of these two sons, one who says, I'm going to do what you say, Father, and then he never ends up doing it. And the other one who says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, go to the vineyard, but he ends up going to the vineyard anyways. And Jesus follows this up with another vineyard parable. And what this parable is really doing is drilling down into the fact that the, the priests, these elders, are really without excuse. That they are, in fact, willfully rejecting Jesus. And Jesus makes this point clear by offering this imagery of a landowner and his vineyard. And it says that he prepped the ground dug a wall, a wall around it, even put a watchtower in place. And as we see this description, it's a description that is echoing that which has already been given in the Old Testament in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. This is what God has to say about the people of Israel. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So notice kind of all the preparatory kind of details here lines up pretty closely to what Jesus describes here in this parable of this vineyard. But the difference is, is that there's a different focus. Whereas Isaiah turns to focusing on there being bad fruit, Jesus turns and focuses on there being bad workers. Now this idea of the vine, the vineyard, is something that's thematic for the Old Testament. In Psalm 80, verse 8, it says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt, talking about Israel. You drove out the nations and planted it. So the, so the vineyard is referring to Israel. And the question here is that these workers, these workers who have gone bad, who do they represent? Well, we'll see in time. Moving forward in the parable, we see that conflict arises after the owner leaves and the time for harvest comes. Now, the reason why that's the point at which the conflict arises is because that's the time when the owner can come to collect on his investment in building up this vineyard. The whole point of building the vineyard is so that he could have his share of the harvest. And yes, these tenant farmers would have their part, but the owner certainly deserves his own. Now, it's interesting. You know, Jesus has used this imagery of vineyard, but he's also used the imagery of of harvest before, and he characterizes his own ministry in light of harvest. And you might remember back in Matthew 9, verse 37, he told the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So in Matthew 9, the trouble is, you know, you've got this harvest and there's not enough workers. But the trouble here in Matthew 21 is not a worker shortage, 
It's the fact that the workers want to keep what belongs to the owner. And so you look at verses 37 through 38, and you see that the landowner sends servants to these farmers to communicate his request that they give him what he's owed. And rather than doing that, they beat one, one of them up, they kill another, and they stone another. And the landowner sends other servants, and they treat them in the same way. Now, who do these servants represent? These servants represent the prophet. So you have this vineyard, and you have these servants going to this vineyard. These servants belong to this landowner who is revealed to be a father. These servants represent the prophets. And we see how it really aligns very well just based on Jesus' own testimony about how God's prophets have been treated over the years. You look at Matthew 5.12. He talks about in the Beatitudes... He says, Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the book of Chronicles, you have it recorded about how the, the prophets were sent to the people of Israel, but they would not listen to them. Second Chronicles 36, it talks about how they responded to God's messengers by mocking them, despising their their words scoffing at them. In Nehemiah, it's recorded how they killed the prophets. Jeremiah, it said that he was beaten and imprisoned. And then you get to, to the New Testament in, he, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 um, gives this record of the faithfulness of the saints before Christ. And by the end of the chapter, it's relating all the things that they suffered. It says, Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destituted, persecuted, and mistreated. And then you turn to the book of Acts. In Acts 7, and you have Stephen one of the first deacons of the church, who is brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is the very body that's confronting Jesus, maybe not the whole entirety of them, but a portion of them. The Sanhedrin, members of the Sanhedrin are those that are confronting Jesus right now. It's made of the high priests, Sadducees, Pharisees. And when Stephen's put before them, he challenges them and says, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Of course, if we're talking about the church, we're talking after the time of Christ's death and resurrection. And so, what Stephen is saying here about the fact that they murdered even the Son, even this righteous one that was sent, it lines up with the details of this parable in which eventually the landowner decides, you know what, 
They haven't listened to my servants, but certainly they'll listen to my son if I send him. He figures they'll respect him. But they don't. Instead, they kill him too. And they kill him not because of mistaken identity as though you know, the son came and they thought, oh, this is just another one of his servants. No, they knew who he was. But rather than respecting him, they saw this as an opportunity. An opportunity to kill the heir and perhaps work it out that they could end up stealing the entire vineyard for themselves in the end. Maybe supposing once the landowner died, well, it would just fall into their hands. Now, of course, as what Stephen testified to, and what Jesus says in chapter 20 about what's to come to him, is exactly what happens to him as what happens in this parable. He gets killed. He's crucified. When we go back to the book of Hebrews, in its first chapter, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says that in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. See, humanity really didn't have anything to complain about. We, had, we were without excuse. Specifically, the nation of Israel was without excuse in their covenant relationship with God. God had been telling them what, what he was desiring of them all along through his prophets. And yet they kept disobeying, disobeying, disobeying. But God is so good that He would send His own Son, even knowing that He was going to be rejected, even knowing that He was going to be killed. And this is what John testifies to in his Gospel, in the first chapter. He says, He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. So putting together, you know, coordinating all these details, the fact that the vineyard represents Israel, the servants represent the prophets, it's clear that the son represents Jesus. We can now identify who these farmers are. The farmers are the people that Jesus is talking to. These high priests and elders. parable suggests that if the leaders are at all ignorant, it's not accidental. If they're ignorant of who Jesus is, it's not because of any fault of Jesus. No, they're being willfully and maliciously ignorant. They're putting their hands over their eyes because they don't want to see who Jesus is. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. They don't want their own authority displaced because they want the vineyard all for themselves. It's interesting, you go to verse 40. 
Jesus poses the question to them, what should happen? What should happen to these farmers who killed the landowner's servants and even his own son? And you'll see that they condemn themselves by their own answer. In verse 41, they say, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. These leaders had come to Jesus to judge him. But now the tables are completely turned. He is judging them for their very efforts to take him down. And so you turn to verses 42 through 46. And Jesus brings home this condemnation by recalling the Old Testament image of the rejected cornerstone and applying it to himself. Now, this association that he makes between himself and the cornerstone is significant in two ways. One, it explains something significant about Jesus' identity and also demonstrates that the response of rejection that these leaders are offering was entirely expected. It's no surprise that the one that God would send would be rejected. Now, if you're wondering, kind of, maybe you're not familiar with kind of the image of a cornerstone. Um, the first initial um, reference to it appears in Psalm 118, 21 through 23. This is the verse that Jesus um, alludes to. He says, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. So that's the passage that Jesus is referencing. And I thought, I, Emily, do you see the images of the cornerstone in there? If you can throw that up, I must have had it in the wrong order. Um, so you have this is a more kind of common image of a cornerstone that we're familiar with, in which it's at the corner of the building, and if you remove that, the whole thing's going to fall down. So it's saying that that's essential. Also, as, as I was kind of digging into this, they said that this could also refer to a stone at kind of the top of the wall. And I, th I think this probably could represent the, the same significance as well. You think about an arch that's got a keystone in it. If you remove that, the whole thing falls down. So in Jesus talking about himself as being this rejected cornerstone, he's saying that these leaders have said that he is not the one on which depends the salvation of Israel. He's not, he's not foundational. In fact, he's no good. We don't want him. But that he has, in fact, proved himself to be this cornerstone. Um, Emily, could you go back to Psalm 118? Thanks. Now, I want you to kind of notice something here. Who is the psalmist talking to? I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The psalmist is talking to God and saying that you have become my salvation. 
And this is the stone that the builders have rejected. It's talking about their own rejection of God. And when you go to Isaiah 8, verses 13 through 15, you see this imagery of the cornerstone come up again. It says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. For many of them will stumble. They'll fall and be broken. They'll be snared and captured. So this aligns with the imagery that Jesus is bringing up. He's brought together two images, the image of the cornerstone in Psalm 118, and also this image of a stone that causes stumbling. And the significance of both is that they both have reference to God. God is this stone upon the which upon which the people stumble. He calls them to obedience, but they do not obey. He calls them to faith, and instead they reject him. So what Jesus is revealing here by making this connection between himself and this cornerstone and the stone that stumbles is that, again, he's, he's hinting that I'm the Son of God. I am, I am divine. And when you get to Acts 4.11, again, post-Jesus' death and resurrection, and Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, they tell them explicitly, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. When we turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8, The Apostle Peter testifies to this. He says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they're destined for. What Peter is capturing here is kind of the dual nature of this stone. Because if the cornerstone was just something that people stumbled over, well, then that wouldn't seem to be a very good thing. Jesus wouldn't seem to be very good news at all. But Peter picks up on this, this nuance and difference. Jesus isn't something you stumble over if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, if you trust him, if you obey him. He only becomes a stone over which you stumble if you reject him. And this is exactly what the leaders of Israel have done. And this is what opens up the gateway for others to be added to the faith. Jesus says that because they have been unfruitful, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people who produce its fruit. It's going to be given to some new farmers. In Romans 9:30 verses 30 through 33. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, 
a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will, be put, will never be put to shame. The trouble with these leaders who are representing Israel, because, of course, it's not talking about all Jewish people, because all the disciples are, are Jewish, and the early church was entirely Jewish, but it's talking about those who are the figureheads of Israel. The reason why they stumble over Jesus is because they don't respond with faith. Instead, their trust is, laying in the, is found in their system of rules. And so the Gentiles are now welcomed into God's kingdom. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, again, as I've just said, this isn't saying that the Jews are excluded from the kingdom of God. Certainly not. But what it is saying, what Paul is saying here, what Jesus is saying, is that salvation, God's kingdom, is no longer exclusive to the Jews. And we see kind of the transformation of this exclusive covenant with Israel to it being inclusive of the Jews when we look across the scope of Scripture. Look at Exodus 19 and um, God talking about this special relationship he has with Israel. He says, Out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, and that even though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now obviously they didn't live up to that. That's why you know, we, we went over those verses about the prophets who came and they didn't respond with obedience. But all this is working towards Jesus. And when we look at Matthew 8, 11 through 12, when Jesus is astounded by the faith of the centurion, this Gentile centurion, he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is already here in Matthew 8 testifying to the fact that those to whom the kingdom already belonged, members of the nation of Israel, are going to be cast into darkness because they did not respond with faith to Jesus. But others are going to be added from across the world, from east and west, and will be found at the table with Abraham. And we see this continued, this continued ministry of going from the Jews to the Gentiles in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas said, We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And then by the time you get to 1 Peter 2.9, it's interesting to kind of compare these two against each other. First, you start with Israel as being this holy nation. But by the time you get to 1 Peter 2, that reference is directed to the church, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile. Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's something that's important to catch there, I think, that God's intent is not simply to redeem individuals, but to redeem a people for himself, to create a new nation in Jesus Christ, to make up a new holy priesthood. Now, we see in verse 45 that the chief priests and Pharisees got the message pretty clearly because they start trying to find ways to kill Jesus. That's how mad they are by what Jesus has been saying. But they hold back because they know that if they try to do anything against Jesus at this point, the crowd's going to um, react badly. (laughs) Now, the reason why they're so upset by Jesus's, what Jesus has been saying here is be, both because of Jesus' criticism of them and also Jesus' claims about himself. We've already covered verses in which it's, by calling himself the cornerstone, Jesus is basically alluding to the fact that he's divine. But when we go also to the Gospel of John, John 10, 31-33, Some of Jesus' Jewish opponents are ready to stone him. And he says, why are you trying to stone me? What did I do wrong? And And they say in John 10, 33, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It's important that we realize that this is really the what's laying behind the resistance that Jesus is facing. It's not because he's doing good things. I think sometimes our popular conception of why Jesus was crucified is because, well, they just didn't like that he was doing nice things. That's not the reason why they crucified Jesus. The reason why they crucified Jesus is because they understood that he was claiming to be the Son of God. And we've seen in Matthew how he's testified to this, and the Father's testified to this. When he was baptized in the Jordan by John, a voice from heaven came saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And in Matthew 11, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So once again, in these verses, Jesus is driving home the essential question that faces every single one of us. Who is Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples this question in Matthew 16, and Peter replied, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he deserves our faith and obedience. He deserves our respect, just as the landowner's son deserved the respect of these tenant farmers. Reject him, and we'll lose our feet. We'll fall flat on our faces. That's what has happened here with these Jewish leaders. Their faces are in the dirt because they do not want Jesus to be the Messiah. They're happy with the status quo. They like being the power brokers. 
They want the vineyard for themselves. But even if they kill Jesus, their resistance will fail. Per the parable, they will be replaced with faithful farmers. And this is exactly what has happened. The Jews are no longer the sole heirs of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to all who respond with faith in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul testifies to this in Romans 11, while also adding a warning. Romans 11, 20 through 22. It says, But they, Israel, were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you, non-Jews, either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. There are two outcomes. We either stumble or we stand. And if we stand, it is by faith. We stand if we have faith in Jesus. We walk into peril when we seek any other foundation, any other cornerstone. We set ourselves up to stumble if we try to put ourselves in the center of the church instead of Jesus. We do share in the vineyard. We do get to enjoy its fruits. But we must never forget who owns it. The gross attitudes of, those, of these farmers is no more gross than the person who builds the church around their whims and wishes and snaps whenever they are called to sacrifice their comfort. And by the same token, taking some liberty here, extending the vineyard imagery further, it's not any more honorable to steal vines from the vineyard. It's not any better to break apart from God's church and do religion on your own terms. This is the way of Adam and Eve who stole away with the forbidden fruit, who schemed to know good and evil on their own terms, who thought they knew better than God and would be their own gods. Our calling is simple. Give to God what belongs to him. Offer yourself to him. Bend your knee to Jesus Christ. Where Israel has failed, Christ has come so that what belongs to God may be restored to him. He has come so that we will produce the fruit of the kingdom. And all that is needed is faith. All that is required is faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, you have revealed your faithfulness this morning 
Because the Scriptures testify that again and again and again You have sent Your servants to us so that we might be in right relationship with You. And even while the covenant nation of Israel, Father, rejected those prophets, and we would have done the same thing, Father, You were still faithful and sent Your own Son so that we might be restored to You. Father, may we respond to Jesus in the right way. May we respond with faith and trust in Him. Let us not stumble over Him, Father, but instead make Him the cornerstone of our new lives in You. Make Him the foundation upon which we are built as a temple unto Your glory and praise. Bring us to repentance, Father, if, like these Jewish leaders, we seek to rob that which belongs to Jesus. If we try to make church about something other than Jesus and put ourselves at the center, or if we try to do things just according to our own terms, Father, help us to be faithful and render all that is due unto you. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.